Welcome to the SF Weekly Podcast. I'm Nick Veronin, your editor in exile, and I am joined by Carly. Meet the new boss, Schwartz. Welcome to the podcast, Carly. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me today. Well, I quote Roger Daltrey of The Who because Carly is indeed the newly installed editor-in-chief of SF Weekly's parent company and media group. Uh, But I do not mean to imply that she is in any way the same as the old boss. Um, A lot of exciting new additions to the editorial team are coming, and San Franciscans can expect that The Examiner and The Weekly, they knew at the end of 2020, will look quite different and be far improved, at least we hope, by the end of 2021. Um, Those of you who follow the goings-on of SF Weekly closely will remember that San Francisco's very own Clint Riley bought The Examiner and The Weekly back in January. At the beginning of May, Carly took the helm. Her resume includes a pioneering stint at Google, a leadership role at the Huffington Post, and uh, she created a journalism school in Panama, which we'll talk about in just a moment. But um, before that, uh, Carly, you and your editorial team, myself included, have this exciting task ahead of us. We're working to rebuild and reimagine both The Examiner, one of the most storied brands in journalism, uh, William Randolph Hearst's flagship newspaper, and SF Weekly, which um, has delivered alternative views on San Francisco news for going on 40 years now. So I just wanted to open by giving you the opportunity to talk in broad strokes about what readers can expect in the near term and, and maybe a year or two years from now. Yeah, sure. I mean, in a year or two years from now, we're just going to be dominating local media. Am I absolutely, right? <laughs> absolutely. Um, so get excited for for a new sheriff in town. No, um, all jokes aside, you know, we have a huge opportunity on our hands. There, There isn't a ton in the local media market in San Francisco. You have the Chronicle, which has been the mainstay newspaper, but you know, we, we can't be a one newspaper town. We have to add other voices to the mix. And so I think the goal of the examiner and the weekly is, is going to be to tell the stories that you don't find in the Chronicle, you know, really interesting, thoughtful perspectives on maybe issues that nobody's talking about that we bring to the forefront perhaps. And I think two key cornerstones of that will be number one, a variety of voices. We want to really amp up our columnist program and just get get as many interesting people from the city, from all walks of life, sharing their views and perspectives. And then the other piece of that is, I think it's no secret that San Francisco is having a hard time right now. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's definitely um, a challenging moment to be a San Franciscan and to navigate these streets. I mean, there's, there's a full-blown humanitarian crisis going on. There's really no other way to put it. And I think as we've learned over the past several years, you know, doom and gloom journalism, there's, there's no shortage of that. There's no shortage sure. of talking about how, how the world is ending and we're all going to die along with it, you know, but, but I think there's a huge opportunity to frame things in a solutions oriented way. If you're familiar with the solutions journalism network, it was founded by two New York times reporters several years ago. They have a philosophy on news that that folks want to read news that frames things through the lens of how are we going to fix things and what's working and where do we go from here? Not, you know, we're all screwed and this is why we should just kind of throw in the towel and have a defeatist attitude about things. And so I really want to bring that solutions oriented philosophy to the examiner and to the weekly and to really look at things, you know, 
from the perspective of what's working. And, and that doesn't mean taking a Pollyanna view and, and saying, you know, this cute baby tiger cub became friends with this cute duckling and everyone, you know, ran off into the sunset because their YouTube video went viral. But really what, what is work, what has worked in other cities to combat homelessness and how would that be applied to San Francisco or, you know, what mental health strategies really do work and what needs to happen and, and what, you know, what would be successful and what wouldn't be successful and and what can we learn from and how do we take our mistakes and grow from there? And why is there a reason to remain hopeful about the future of our city? San Francisco is, is just a phenomenal, multifaceted, historic, beautiful, world-class city. And I want to remind our readers, you know, why we love to live here. And I think that solutions-oriented bent will really help go a long way in doing that. I I, I couldn't agree more. Um, Before we get too deep into the weeds uh, with the journalism water cooler uh, banter here, uh, I want to catch people up on on your CV. I mentioned uh, Google, Huffington Post, and this journalism school that you um, started in Panama. Can you kind of briefly walk us through some of the the highlights of your resume that, uh, that got you to where you are today? Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I moved to San Francisco right out of college. I was born here and I had always wanted to come back. And I took a job, an unpaid job as a fact checker at San Francisco Magazine, which was a lot bigger back then. And Mm -hmm. um, they had a full intern room full of fact checkers. So I was literally going granularly word for word through articles, um, just trying to see if they had been reported accurately. And as a result, I got to learn so much about San Francisco. It was like a crash course in San Francisco, but obviously an unpaid job as a fact checker is not very lucrative. So I ended up leaving journalism for a couple of years, getting a job in the advertising industry, kind of trying to see what the business side of the world looked like, but I couldn't stay away. You know, I really missed writing and reporting and storytelling. So From there, I ended up taking a leap and working on Jerry Brown's gubernatorial campaign. So I'm kind of dating myself here. He ran for governor, I think it was 11 years ago now. And, uh, and I joined the campaign as, as what we called a new media director back then, which would be social media today. And I created a blog and I basically followed him around the campaign trail and blogged about what he was doing and how he was reaching voters and was running his Twitter account and his YouTube page and, and what little there was of Facebook back then. Instagram didn't even exist yet. And from there, the Huffington Post, which was this big burgeoning, you know, news online news experiment at the time actually picked up my blog posts and started syndicating them. And so when Jerry won and, and the campaign was over, I had the chance to join HuffPost full-time and started as a front-page editor in New York City for about six months, but then caught wind that they were opening up a San Francisco office and and threw my hat in the ring for that because I, I really never wanted to leave San Francisco in the first place. And so long story short, ended up running that office for a few years and then jumping back to New York to serve as deputy national editor, which was you know a top leadership role in the newsroom. And from there, you know, I, I turned 30 and realized I hadn't really seen the world. I had just been kind of staring at it through a computer screen for, for many, many, many years. And, and so I, I quit, you know, full stop. And I moved to Mexico City for a fellowship. And it was in the microfinance space through Kiva.org. But I really, really missed 
reporting and storytelling. So I, I started freelancing. I wrote for Quartz and Vice News and Atlas Obscura and a number of other publications, Good Magazine. And through that, ended up coming into contact with with a man who was opening what he called the world's most sustainable town in the middle of the Panamanian jungle. He was basically creating a sustainability research institute as part of his eco-village and wanted to launch a media school along with that to teach students how to tell stories about sustainability using what we were doing as sort of the canvas for that, as the subject matter. So while I was down there, I I designed a whole kind of crash course in journalism. It was a 10-week program, and students produced everything from videos to a beautiful online magazine to podcasts. Um, it, was, it was really like a test kitchen for for journalism techniques using what we were doing as, as the main subject matter. And we traveled all over Panama. It was really interesting. It's still going on today and in kind of a smaller form. But from there, you know, after being abroad for close to two years, uh, I really missed San Francisco. So I came home and I made the leap into big tech and worked at Google for four years where I was actually doing, I, I never even knew this would be a job and it was kind of the most bizarre job I've ever had, but I described it as running Google's school newspaper and um, <laughs> basically created an internal news platform uh, for Google's entire worldwide uh workforce. And so smaller audience that I had worked with in the past, but, but definitely much more engaged and opinionated. And, and so I was able to, I was Google famous. I was, you know, I, I traveled to all their offices, meeting folks and telling stories and running workshops and hosting events. And it was, it was really interesting. I, I got to learn, you know, everything there was to know about the tech industry and about what, what this behemoth company was sort of doing and its impact on our wider society. But I, I always maintained a, a, a love for local news and I followed the industry really closely. And, you know, if I'm being honest, I look back at the arc of my career running the San Francisco Bureau of HuffPost was by far and away the highlight. And so getting to do that on a much wider scale with the Examiner and SF Weekly and the Knob Hill Gazette and, really having a chance to kind of reinvent the way we approach local news in my favorite city in the whole world was was an opportunity I couldn't pass up. So though I was really happy at Google and the benefits were just out of this world, I I could not pass up this opportunity when it came along. Yeah, that's um that is quite a resume um and I think it makes you uh very well positioned to to lead these papers and I didn't even know all of that. I mean, we've had several conversations and I I see why why Clint uh picked you, tapped you uh uh, even more clearly <laughs> now. It sounds like you have a real passion for journalism. And I, I mean, I know you do because we've talked about it a lot, but like we haven't talked about it on the podcast. So let's talk about the state of journalism today. What are the challenges facing the industry writ large that you're that you're really interested in? Oh, gosh, the list goes on and on and on and on. And the challenges <laughs> have really changed over the years from when I first jumped into the industry and it was kind of the rise of blogging and now social media has just overtaken everything. And I think, you know, such a huge challenge as we talked about a little bit before we started recording the podcast is, is just how do you cut through the noise? There's so much noise. The internet is just this, this universe of, of chatter, of, 
you know, human beings just sounding off about anything and how do you distinguish what's true and what's false and, you know, the rise in influencers, the idea of an influencer, that wasn't a concept when I first Mm -hmm. uh, jumped into this industry, but now authority figures can be anyone who decides that they want to take, you know, attractive photos of themselves on Instagram. And that's where so many people are getting their news. So how do you position yourself as an authoritative, authoritative source and, you know, a true kind of expert and, and reliable, uh, storyteller to, to get your news from, I think is, is a huge challenge, especially as we grow these local brands that folks might not be super accustomed to engaging with on a large scale, you know, over the past several years. And I think local news, um, has just faced so, so, so many challenges as, as you know, web giants have kind of overtaken and amplified news sources like the New York Times, the Washington Post. And, and as a result, local newsrooms all over the country, all over the world have been gutted and downsized and lost their their traditional forms of monetizing, you know, classified ads, local business advertisements used to keep these, these massive, what were once massive organizations afloat. And that's all shifted online. It's all shifted to platforms like, like Google, like Facebook. And as a result, local news organizations, local newsrooms, local news platforms have really struggled to find their livelihood and find a way to stay viable in that market. And, and they've been gutted, you know, there's that trend of, of, uh, of vulture funds kind of coming in and, and, and buying up newspapers and then profiting off them and slashing the entire staff and, and really not producing anything that even slightly resembles journalism. And so I think it's really exciting that we have someone who has purchased our publications who really does have an appetite for local news and for storytelling and wants to grow and wants to experiment with new ways to monetize our products that don't necessarily look like traditional print advertising models. And, and from there, you know, hopefully we can, we can be one of the success stories. I mean, there are success stories out there too. I love what the Texas Tribune has done in Texas, growing from from an unknown local brand to the, the number one source of politics for political news for that entire state. I love what Berkeley side and Oakland side are doing across the Bay, kind of creating a new model for online city civic journalism that really engages the community and tells stories that that they know that their constituents want to read about because they do so much deep community listening. Um, so those are just two examples of, you know, local news projects that I think are headed in, in an interesting direction, heading in the right direction. And, and hopefully we can, you know, really be, be part of that story rather than the story of, of these sort of shrinking publications all over the country. Absolutely. And uh, just because it's a favorite topic of mine, and just in case uh, any of you listeners have made it this far and you aren't familiar, I mean, Carly touched upon a lot of stuff there. Um, Carly and I are of of, of the same uh, generation, I think, right? We're kind of older millennials. And yeah, I we're think- the image. (laughs) (laughs) I don't quite have the eclectic mix of career experiences that Carly has. I've been in journalism the whole time, but I want to just rewind real quick, real quick history lesson. Like when I was graduating from, 
from school, uh, San Jose State. I, I went there for journalism for my undergrad. I mean, YouTube was brand new. I didn't have a Facebook. I was still posting on MySpace. I didn't know how things were going to change and how drastically they were going to change. One of my first internships, I mean, Craigslist had been around, but I remember I was in the office of the Palo Alto Weekly when they were at their old office um, near near University Avenue. And they were saying like, oh, you know, Craigslist is really kind of cut in, is really, really, really starting to cut into our classifieds right now, you know, and that was the early aughts. And um, just in case, you know, you didn't know, classifieds used to be such a huge part of the business model. And um, of newspapers. I mean, where were you going to sell your bike? Where were you going to sell your car? It wasn't Craigslist. So um, long story short, I think journalists, um, older journalists, and not to pile on because this has been said before and said again, but like we kind of we kind of missed an opportunity there. We didn't understand the internet. And now, as Carly says, there are successful models. There are people who are figuring out how to make journalism for the 21st century. And, um, it's, it's not going to look like journalism did in the 20th century. And, uh, it's exciting to, to try to be, to be a part of that and to try to come up with that new, that new vision. So, so, we talked about writ large, the journalism industry. Um, what are the challenges facing our brands specifically? And you brought up earlier that we, we also have the Knob Hill Gazette. That was my bad for not mentioning them in the, the intro. I mean, you know, in a, in, a, in a town like San Francisco where there is this kind of like very, very established behemoth of, of the Chronicle, which is even, you know, smaller than it, than it used to be, um, what are we going to do? to differentiate ourselves and, and to do the things that you said, you know, that you pointed to Berkeley side doing and the things that the Texas Tribune has had success with. I mean, what, what are you, what are you envisioning? I think two of the things, one of the reasons that, that the Texas Trib and, and that Oakland side and Berkeley side have been so successful is one by picking one thing and being really, really, really good at that. So I think if we really go deep on this, on either whether it's solutions-oriented storytelling, whether it's amplifying voices, whether we maybe decide to veer off and and, and really look at tech in a new way, I think we're really going to have to choose what's that one thing and, and really double, triple down on that. And then also community listening, I think, needs to be such a huge part of this strategy. Community listening and potentially community organizing. I, I had a really interesting interesting talk with Clint the other day about what if we get, what if we organize our readers around issues that we really care about and get them into the streets, you know, kind of collecting signatures and, and fighting for causes that are important. Um, he's got a, a deep, deep background in the political uh, consulting space and, and around organizing there. So, you know, I think, I think that combination of, of community and of, of, doing that one thing. And, and what I'm leaning towards is, is kind of that solutions oriented philosophy. Um, hopefully that will stand to differentiate ourselves also by not getting into the sort of breaking news game. I think what we don't want to do is just try to be first on the scene of stories that it's so clear that the TV stations are covering that the Chronicle's covering, you know, we do have a smaller staff. We're going to have to have to operate strategically. It's going to have to be a quality over quantity game. And so I think just wasting our resources, trying to be three minutes earlier than another news outlet on, you know, at the scene of a crime or at the scene of a fire or at the scene of another breaking news story just is not a smart 
way to approach. I think we really need to to have those thought scoops and those really analytical, thoughtful takes on things, those new ways into stories that folks aren't already thinking about, uh, you know, will will help distinguish ourselves, you know, create conversations rather than following conversations. And um, in the in the same vein of creating conversations, I think there's a massive opportunity in the events space. Um, the city's opening back up, you know, we're facing hopefully what's going to be a renaissance, the roaring 20s. Let's inject ourselves into that, into that milieu by creating conversations, creating events, fireside chats, panel discussions, concert series, you know, it's all sponsored by the examiner, by the weekly, by these storied brands, as you called them, and, and really get the people of San Francisco together around the issues that we're telling stories about on our pages. I hope you're excited by that stuff. I hope the listeners out there are excited by that stuff. And I hope that you all are um, paying close attention to the examiner and the weekly in, in the months and the rest of the rest of 2021, you um, are going to notice some differences. It's it's, and we, we hope that you like what you see. Um, We believe you will. So um, I want to thank Carly again for joining us on this week's edition of the SF weekly podcast. Thanks Carly. Thank you for having me. It's so fun to talk about this stuff. Coming up on the podcast, SF Weekly contributing writer Veronica Irwin talks with Dr. Michelle Ross to unpack the complex nature of vaccine hesitancy and disinformation within the cannabis industry. Stay tuned. Hi there. My name is Veronica Irwin, and I'm a freelance contributor for SF Weekly. I'm here today with Dr. Michelle Ross, who is a neuroscientist that has become one of the more well-known doctors in the cannabis and plant medicine space. She battled fibromyalgia and has a background in studying addiction and helps people learn how to treat chronic pain with cannabis, kratom, and mushrooms. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about COVID-19 and why some cannabis industry professionals are choosing not to get the vaccine. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ross. Thank you so much for having me. Now, it's worth saying we are both vaccinated. I have Moderna and she has Johnson & Johnson. But this segment is not going to be an advertisement on getting the vaccine. So if you are skeptical about the vaccine and going, ugh, I don't want to hear another one of these campaign ads, we're not going to be hitting here, sitting here, hitting you over the head with the hammer for 15 minutes. Rather, I just kind of want to add some empathy to the conversation and humanize some of the reasons why people are hesitant about the vaccine and unpack uh, some of the information that people in the industry are making their decisions based off of. So just to start, you know, I I always am wary of assessing a situation just based off my own little social bubble here in San Francisco. Um, That being said, about half of my friends in the cannabis industry that I would be hanging out with and smoking with probably pre-pandemic are not getting their vaccine. 
what does that look like on your end, Dr. Ross? Like, are a lot of the people that you know in the industry vaccine hesitant, or is that just my little social bubble? Um, you're, you're not far off. So I am based in, in Las Vegas, Nevada right now, um, but I've lived in Los Angeles for many years and have um, colleagues in the, the cannabis industry across the United States. Um, and what we're seeing is that there is a very high level of vaccine hesitancy. And you know, as somebody who is both a scientist and somebody who is a chronic patient and works as both an employee and employer in the cannabis industry, I can see, you know, multiple sides of the conversation. And I think it's really important to touch on, yes, why people might be worried about it. And is it fact-based or is it, you know, emotion-based? And as a chronically ill patient myself, I was actually highly concerned about getting the vaccine because of the severe side effects that are associated with having, say, autoimmune disease. Uh, disorders and having a very Mm -hmm. other, uh, you know, overreactive uh, uh, reaction to uh, the vaccine. And and me personally, when I got the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, I uh, started to experience severe symptoms about two hours later, it was sick for about 32 hours. Uh, So I know my my uh, immune system responded, and I'm protected, but Mm -hmm. it was not not very fun. And you know, telling other people in the industry about that experience, like, oh, goodness, I don't want that. Or oh, goodness, um, I can't take a day off from work uh, to be sick for this vaccine. Like, you know, there's, a, there's a lot of issues there. And so I think we do have to have some sympathy for the fact that many people in the cannabis industry uh, have chronic illnesses. And in fact, they got involved mm-hmm. in the cannabis industry because they were using cannabis to treat those disorders. So they might not even be appropriate for being vaccinated, you know, people with seizures or people with severe autoimmune disorders. So just keep in mind that being vaccinated isn't a choice for everyone, and that's okay. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit more. I mean, what are the main reasons that you are hearing for people not getting the vaccine? Is it mainly because people have chronic autoimmune um, disorders or or other chronic conditions like that? Yes, absolutely. And then besides the the fact that, again, some people might not be a fit for the vaccine, there's also this huge uh, distrust, I would say, of... um, the government and telling us what is healthy, uh, you know, what is okay, uh, what is medicine and what's not medicine. If you remember, uh, in the United States, cannabis is still a schedule one drug. Uh, and the definition mm-hmm. of that is that it's a harmful, addictive drug with no medical benefits. And we know that we have medical marijuana programs set up, you know, in over 30 states, uh, it obviously has so many medical benefits that have been uh, mm-hmm. proven through clinical research studies. And so a lot of people in the industry feel like the government is lying to them and to the public about the, the medical benefits of cannabis, that there are none. And so that makes them not trust uh, doctors that are saying, hey, the vaccine's safe, you know, go take that. And they're like, I, I don't believe a word they say because they're lying about so many other topics. And as a chronically ill patient, um, you know, especially um, I would say that most of um, the people that I've met that have been very hesitant about taking the vaccine have been um, workers in the cannabis industry that are people of color. Again, um, we have a lot of mm-hmm. harms of, of the war on drugs. We have a lot of other um, types of racial discrimination in, in the medical field. And so I think that there's a high level of, of distrust specifically in that demographic. Totally. I mean, I've spoken to five folks so far specifically for this assignment. And obviously I've had plenty of conversations with my different, you know, friends and connections on social media and and stuff like that. Um, And I don't personally know, I think, too many people that have um, chronic conditions. So I haven't heard as much about that, but I've heard a lot about folks that either 
A, you know, they're interested in the cannabis industry because of their interest in plant-based medicine and they have a lot of knowledge about it and they know how often the benefits of plant-based medicine are minimized in formal medical settings. And so, yeah, that makes them really suspicious. And then also people that in plain terms, I would say, have endured trauma either at the hands of our medical system or of at the hands of the federal government. A lot of folks that are people of color and it all kind of comes together hearing about the Tuskegee experiment. Maybe they have some personal mm-hmm. trauma. We know that doctors tend to minimize pain and other illnesses that black patients come in with, for example. Um, and then also just you know, the war on drugs and everything else. Like it's all one big thing that just makes them very skeptical of anything coming out of the federal government or from major federal agencies in the United States. And I mean, I don't personally know how I should be responding to that as a white woman, but I do think it's really important to pause for that and acknowledge that that is legitimate trauma that people have either suffered intergenerationally or personally. Um, And I don't know if we always address that. I think a lot of times we look at it as an obstacle Uh, to get over in order to get someone to take the vaccine rather than going, hey, let's also pause for a section a second. And how do we not how do we make sure that we're not reinforcing racism in our medical systems? How can we personally combat that? Like there's not really much of that conversation. And I think that makes a lot of people distrustful. Exactly. I mean, agency being able to control what you put in your own body, right? That's something that we really do stress in the cannabis industry, right? You have, you should have the freedom to choose your own medicine, to be able to use cannabis if you want to. And by the same token, I think um, we have a lot of people that like lean libertarian, right? And it's like, well, we should also be able to choose not to take certain medical treatments, including vaccinations. And so I think that there there are two sides of the same coin. If you believe in freedom type of things, um, you know, there is a lot of you know, a heavily charged uh, things on both sides of take the vaccine or don't take the vaccine. Yeah. Um, We haven't talked about it very much yet, but also disinformation is obviously a buzzword that's thrown around a lot in this conversation. But where, I mean, where do you think folks in the cannabis industry are actually getting their information from? And like, are those information sources any different, you think, than the masses, I suppose, or like other bodies of people. Like, for example, there's been a lot of coverage about how Trump supporters, for example, are not getting the vaccine as much. And and there's like specific silos of information that where people uh, seem to be, you know, getting their information from that they make these decisions off of. Well, unfortunately, um, cannabis industry members are, are just like any other member of society. And where are we getting our information from? Unfortunately, social media. And I would say sources like Facebook, right? Uh, The algorithms tend to show you what you already believe. And so if you're already searching for anti-vax type of information, or you might be in Facebook groups that are saying, hey, my child with autism, you know, got a vac- was vaccinated and that's why they got autism and I'm anti-vax, you're going to be shown a lot of anti-vaccine Uh, posts that are going to confirm don't take the vaccine. Um, And I do believe that there are many people in the cannabis industry um, that are in, I would say, these types of Facebook groups that are much more pro-plant medicine, anti-pills, anti-vaccines, and things like that, especially because we do have a large number of, say, mothers in the industry that have uh, children with autism or things like that. And so there's, again, these incorrect associations with vaccine harms um, in in certain conditions and things like that. And so if you already started off as anti-vaccine, Um, you're not going to switch and flip and say, okay, now I'm going to take this COVID vaccine. So I think that there is a lot of misinformation on the internet. It gets shared a lot. And uh, unfortunately, 
I've had to actually take a pause as a scientist who's actually been trained in viruses. Um, I, I've done work, um, you know, studying the immune system myself um, in the brain and have to not respond to some of the things that I've seen online, you know, have to sort of step back because when somebody believes very deeply that vaccines are, you know, cause of harm, if you tell them, you know, I took it and I was okay, they're not really going to listen to you. They're sort of Mm going to double down on their vaccine hesitancy. And right now I've seen such a big distrust of scientists and doctors. Um, There's a lot of us out there trying to spread correct information and listen and empathize with people but we're met with very much like scientists or the devil, you know, type of things. And it's sort of, it's been a very interesting time. And just seeing the, the, again, being a chronically ill patient in a lot of Facebook groups for support of these different conditions, like for example, fibromyalgia groups, most of the patients with fibromyalgia uh, were very against getting the vaccine. I would say it was like, it's very polarized. You know, you have half of them spreading anti-vaccine articles and things like that. And you have the other half saying, I need it because I'm afraid I'll die if I get this virus. Um, So it's been very split down the middle. There's very little neutral things. I do think that there are, of course, um, some really big people um, in podcasting or, um, you know, in other type of thought leadership that are spreading misinformation information. Uh, for example, Joe Rogan, for example, has been very like anti-vaccine right. and he's someone that's love him. up yeah. to. Yes. Oh my goodness. And it's been um, just very, very harmful to try to counter um, some of these big things and these big voices. And so I think there was an article out there that was saying like 10 people, like 10 big thought leaders in health are responsible for 90% of the disinformation about the vaccine. And unfortunately, a lot of those thought leaders are people that people in the cannabis industry as well as cannabis patients really listen to and uh, look up to. Yeah, yeah. I will say I've seen quite a lot of disinformation on cannabis-specific pages. Um, I won't list them (laughs) um, on here because I don't know how many listeners will be familiar with these kind of like niche pages. They're like... Mm -hmm. You know what I'm talking about. There's like cannabis information pages that definitely serve a purpose when you consider how much, how little um, information really circulate, circulates about cannabis mm-hmm. and like they are accurate probably 95% of the time. But I've noticed um, I actually made a fake Instagram account for working on this article just to see where the algorithm takes me. And I've noticed mm-hmm. if I frequent a lot of plant-based medicine hashtags and alternative medicine hashtags and if I go to different like for lack of a better word, like shamanistic uh, figures, people that are kind of like thought leaders and have like a belief around cannabis. Um, Even if they themselves are not posting disinformation, the algorithm takes me towards disinformation. And I can't prove it, but I have some kind of theory that like maybe the AI picks up any medical information you're interested in that's not from authoritative sources as like, oh, you're interested in disinformation about medicine I don't know and it takes me that direction because I get I mean I go it's not just um COVID vaccine misinformation I'll start seeing I'll start seeing all sorts of stuff about pregnancy about nutrition about you Mm -hmm. know um that is clearly false um and so there's no way to definitively say that but a lot of the sources I've spoken to do say that they get their information from those kinds of figures online because they don't necessarily trust journalism and they don't necessarily trust um, doctors. <laughs> I was reading a thing earlier today that the number one most trusted person on vaccination information for the general public is doctors, but I would be skeptical whether all cannabis users are necessarily the most trustworthy, trusting of uh, doctors in like institutional positions, people like uh, Fauci, Dr. Fauci and the CDC and stuff like that. Oh. 
I mean, this is why I think it's so interesting to talk to you, though, because you do have expertise in plant-based medicine. You don't shy away from talking about how CBD, kratom, and mushrooms can be legitimately helpful medically. But obviously, those are three plant-based medicines that are not always accepted in from institutional medical sources or are not advocated for. Um, and so as someone who's very rooted in this plant medicine space, like when you do have those conversations, is there anything that you found is particularly helpful in convincing people or at least not alienating people? I mean, on, on those topics or on, on, on vaccine hesitancy, um, in terms of educating people on, on some of these different plant medicines, I mean, there's so much to connect with right now. I think that this is like the new renaissance of learning about, about plant medicine. Um, but there's still, again, is the, it doesn't matter what the information you're telling people is they have to trust the person who is telling them. Right. And so, um, you know, with, with plant medicine, it doesn't matter if I've been educating people for 10 years, right. It doesn't matter if I have five books, if they think that I am lying to them about something or pushing something, or I'm being funded by the government to say something that they disagree with, right. Like they're not going to listen anymore. Um, I would say that there's actually some really interesting facts too about Kratom, um, which is something that, you know, most people don't know is that there's actually studies published in other countries that are also saying it's anti-inflammatory and antiviral and things like that. So it's been really interesting. I think, you know, trying to, again, talk to people about plant medicine as supporting your immune system and not necessarily an alternative to vaccines and things like that. Like they can both work together. You know, I do think that you should be taking vitamins. You should be using CBD, a cannabis, a kratom, mushrooms, whatever it is that, you know, is a tool in your toolbox to really be healthy, right? Um, we know that there might even, you know, be um, some benefit to using plant medicine, you know, after you receive your vaccine to help deal with some of the side effects like nausea or headaches or things like that from the the second dose of the vaccine, which tends to be the, the more um, side effect heavy dose. Um, so I think, again, it's just trying to, to help people understand that you don't have to choose one or the other. You don't have to choose plant medicine or Western medicine. Like they could both be integrated together. They're complementary medicine. They're not alternative medicine. Um, and that, that phrase has come up a lot. Like, mm -hmm. oh, don't, you know, plants versus pills, like it's one or the other. And I do think that, you know, um, in our, our modern life, we really have to embrace both. Totally. I agree. <laughs> and I think that's a pretty good uh, place to end our podcast on. Thank you so much for doing this interview with me, Michelle. I really appreciate it. And where can people find you on social media if they want to keep up with all the work you're doing? Sure. Uh, you can find me on Instagram or on Twitter under Dr. Michelle Ross. That's D-R-M-I-C-H-E-L-E-R-O-S-S. -S. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Ross. I really appreciate it. And I hope you have a good one. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning into this week's edition of the SF Weekly Podcast. The episode was produced by me, Nick Veronin. Our audio engineer is Mike Huguenor. For more hot takes, deep dives, and alternative views on San Francisco news, pick up an issue of SF Weekly, visit our website at sfweekly.com, and subscribe to our podcast. See you next week.